They say it was unbearably hot in Fall River, Massachusetts on August 4th, 1892, and that the temperature had climbed to well over 100 degrees before noon. Sometime between 10.30 and 11 a.m. at the boarding house, located at 92 2nd Street, all hell was about to break loose. See, Andrew Borden had just returned home from his morning errands. He was taking care of some business transactions, and he was not feeling so well. So he reclined on the sofa in the sitting room. He leaned back against the arm of the sofa, turned so that his boots were on the floor so as not to soil the couch's upholstery. In a short time, he drifted off to sleep, a sleep from which he would never awaken. Now, as Andrew J. Borden drifted off to sleep, he never realizes that just above him, on the second floor of his home, his wife lay bleeding on the floor of the upstairs guest room. She had been dead now for nearly two hours, and within moments, the same hand that had taken her life would take, would take the life of Mr. Andrew Borden as well. Now, even if he had known these things would happen on that hot, sultry Thursday morning in Fall River, by some macabre premonition, little would he have guessed that his murderer would never be brought to justice. The case of Lizzie Borden has fascinated those with an interest in American crime for well over a century. Up until that time, a few, few cases had attracted as much attention as the hatchet murders of Andrew Borden and his wife, Abby. This is partly because of the gruesomeness of the crime, but also because of the unexpected character of the accused. You see, Lizzie Borden was not a raving maniac. She was a demure, respectable spinster, a Sunday school teacher. Because of this, the entire town was shocked when she was charged with the murder of her parents. The, the fact that she was found to be not guilty of the murders, leaving the case to be forever unresolved, only adds to the mystique and fans the flames of our continuing obsession with the mystery. Andrew Jackson Borden was one of the leading citizens of Fall River, Massachusetts a prosperous mill town and seaport. The Borden family had strong roots in the community, and they had been among the most influential citizens of the region for decades. At the age of 70, Mr. Borden was certainly one of the richest men in the city. He was a director on the board of several banks and a commercial landlord with considerable holdings. He was a tall, thin, and dour man, and while he was known for his thrift and admired for his business abilities, he was not well known for his humor, nor was he particularly likable. Borden lived with his second wife, Abby Durfee Gray, and his two grown daughters from his first marriage. 
42-year-old Emma and Lizzie, who was 32 years old. They lived in a two-and-a-half-story frame house located in an unfashionable part of town, but was close to his business interests. Both daughters felt the house was beneath their station in life and begged their father to move to a nicer place. But Andrew Borden's frugal nature would not allow him to even consider it. Despite this, in his conservative daily life, Borden was said to be moderately generous to his daughters. The events that would lead to the tragedy began early on that Thursday morning. The first person awake in the house that morning was Bridget Sullivan, the maid. Bridget was a 26-year-old respectable Irish girl who emigrated to America from Ireland in 1886. She had been with the Borden household since 1889, and there is nothing to suggest that she was anything but an exemplar, exempl exemplary young woman and servant. For some unknown reason, Emma and Lizzie both rudely insisted on calling Bridget Maggie, which was the name of a previous servant. Bridget came downstairs from her attic room around 6 a.m., brought in the milk, left on the steps by the milkman. She then built a fire in the kitchen and began preparing breakfast, which consisted of hot coffee, some biscuits with jam, some cookies, and some leftover mutton stew. Due to Mr. Borden's frugalness, he had stated at the end of supper the night before that Bridget was to serve the stew for breakfast the next morning. The Borden household was up early as usual, around 7 a.m. Mr. and Mrs. Borden and John Morse, the brother of Andrew Borden's first wife, who was a regular guest in the Borden home, came down to breakfast. John Vinicum Morse, Lizzie and Emma's uncle from Dartmouth, Massachusetts, had arrived unannounced the day before. He came to Fall River several times a year to visit the family and conducted business in town. Emma was not at home, having gone to visit friends in the nearby town of Fairhaven. Lizzie slept late, and did not join the others for breakfast. Good morning, Miss. Good morning, Bridget, Mrs. Borden said as Bridget was setting the table in the dining room. We'll need an extra setting as Mr. Morse had graced us with a visit, she said. Good morning, ma'am, Bridget replied. Good morning, sirs, she added. How are you, Bridget? Mr. Morse greeted her. It's good to see you again. Thank you, sir. I'm doing well, Bridget answered. She finished setting the table and quietly went on about her morning duties in the kitchen while the family ate and chatted. So tell me, Andrew, why didn't you buy Gold's yacht for sale? John asked. I saw it was advertised for $200,000. Andrew Borden laughed. It would do me little good if I had it, he replied. Perhaps you should buy it. 
Oh no, it's a little too rich for my blood or my pockets, John said, smiling. Besides, I've come to Fall River for one reason, to buy a pair of oxen for Butcher Davis back home. Well, I should say, we're happy to have you stay with us, John, Abby said. She picked up the small bell on the table and rang it to summon Bridget. Thank you, Abby. You and Andrew are always so gracious. Do you have any other plans while you're here? Abby asked. Well, I thought I'd visit my cousin Daniel Emery and see my niece and nephew while I'm in town. I need to go by the post office too to send a postcard to my brother William over in Swansea. Yes, ma'am, Bridget said, entering the room. Bridget, would you bring us some more coffee, Abby said. Yes, ma'am, Bridget went to the kitchen and returned with a pot. Be sure and come back here for dinner if you're finished with your errands, Andrew said. I have some business to attend to this morning myself, but I should be back way before then. All right, John said. I, I expect I'll see you, I, I expect I'll be through by then. I'll see you both for dinner. After breakfast, Abby went to the kitchen to speak with Bridget about washing the windows, and Mr. Gordon and Mr. Morris retired to the sitting room to read the morning paper. A little before eight, Morse left the house to go and visit his niece and nephew, and Mr. Borden locked the screen door after him. It was a peculiar custom in the house to always keep the doors locked. Even the doors between rooms upstairs were usually locked. A few minutes after Morse left, Lizzie came downstairs but said that she wasn't hungry. She had coffee and a cookie, but nothing else as she sat at the kitchen table thrumming through a magazine. Are you sure you won't have anything, Miss Lizzie? Bridget asked. I'm not feeling well. I fear I may have to touch it. I feel like, uh, Lizzie says, I'm not feeling well. I fear I may have a touch of the stomach disorder that's going around, she said to Bridget. Bridget later stated that she felt the need to go outside and throw up sometime after breakfast. Over a previous couple of days, Mr. and Mrs. Borden had been ill during the night and had both vomited several times. It has been assumed that this may have been food poisoning due to some leftover mutton soup. Some speculated it may have been the onset of the flu or something far more sinister. At a quarter past nine, Andrew Borden left the house and walked a few blocks to downtown. Abby Borden, who had been dusting the downstairs rooms, went upstairs to make the beds, to make the bed in a guest room in which Morse was staying. At about 9.30 a.m., she came downstairs for a few, moment, few moments and then went back up again, commented that she needed fresh pillowcases. Bridget went about her daily chores and started on the window washing, retrieving pails and water from the barn. At one point, she paused for a few minutes to chat over the fence with the hired girl next door. 
She finished the outside of the windows at about 10.30 a.m. and went inside. Approximately a quarter of an hour later, Mr. Borden returned home. Bridget let him in because the front door was locked and bolted from the inside. As Bridget would later tell, she fumbled with the locks. She thought she heard Lizzie's laughter coming from upstairs. Lizzie was coming downstairs as the door opened and her father came in. Where is your mother? He asked. Lizzie. Miss Borden has gone out. She had a note from someone who was sick, said Lizzie. Lizzie and Emma always called their stepmother Mrs. Borden. And recently, the relationship between them, especially with Lizzie, was strained. Andrew Borden took the key to his bedroom from a shelf and went up the back stairs. His and Abby's bedroom could only be reached by these stairs, and there was no hallway, and the front stairs only gave access to Lizzie's room, from which Emma's could be reached. And the guest room. They were connecting doors between the elder Borden's rooms and Lizzie's room, but they were usually kept locked. Mr. Borden stayed upstairs for only a few minutes before coming back downstairs and settling onto the sofa in the sitting room. Meanwhile, Lizzie began to heat an iron to press some handkerchiefs. Are you going out this afternoon, Maggie? She asked Bridget. There is a cheap sale of dress goods at Sargent's this afternoon at eight cents a yard. Bridget replied that she was not. The heat of the morning combined with the window washing and her touch of a stomach ailment had left her feeling poorly. She said she was going to lie down for a bit and she went up the back stairs to her attic room for a nap. This was a few minutes before 11. Some 15 or 20 minutes later, a cry rang out. Maggie, come down, Lizzie shouted from the bottom of the stairs and Bridget's eyes fluttered open. She had drifted off into a restless sleep, but the urgency of Lizzie's cries startled her awake. What is the matter? Bridget shouted. She smoothed out her dress and slipped into her shoes and scurried to the doorway as her feet tapped down the staircase. She was horrified by what she heard next. Come down quick, Lizzie wailed. Father's dead. Somebody's come in and killed him. As Bridget hurried from the staircase, she found Lizzie standing at the back door. Her face was pale and taut. She stopped a young maid from going into the sitting room saying, don't go in there and go and get Dr. Run. Dr. Bowen, a family friend, lived across the street from Borden's and Bridget ran directly to his house. The doctor was out, but Bridget told Mrs. Bowen that Mr. Borden had been killed. She ran directly back to the house. Lizzie was standing at the screen door on the side of the house, just off the kitchen, just staring out into the yard. Where were you when this thing happened? She asked Lizzie. I was out in the yard and I heard a groan and came in. The screen door was wide open, Lizzie replied. 
and then she sent Bridget to summon the Borden sister's friend, Miss Alice Russell, who lived a few blocks away. By now, the neighbors were starting to gather on the lawn, and someone had called for the police. Mrs. Adelaide Churchill, the next-door neighbor, came over to Lizzie and was at the back entrance of the house and asked if anything was wrong. Lizzie responded by saying, Oh, Mr. Churchill, someone has killed father. Where is your father? she asked. In the sitting room. Where were you when it happened? I went into the barn to get a piece of iron. Mrs. Churchill then asked, Where is your mother? Lizzie said that she didn't know and that Abby Barden, her stepmother, had received a note asking her to respond to someone who was sick. She also added, But I don't know. But I don't know, but that she is killed too, for I thought I heard her come in. Father must have an enemy, for we have all been sick and we think the milk has been poisoned. By this time, Dr. Bowen had returned along with Bridget, who had hurried back from informing Mrs. Russell of the day's dire events. Dr. Bowen had examined the body and asked for a sheet to cover it. Mr. Borden had been attacked with a sharp object, probably an axe, and so much damage had been done to his head and face that Dr. Bowen, a close friend, could not at first positively identify him. Borden's head was turned slightly to the right, and eleven blows had gashed his face. One eye had been cut in half, and his nose had been severed. The majority of the blows had been struck within the area that extended from the eyes and nose to the ears. Blood was still seeping from the wounds and had been splashed onto the wall above the sofa, the floor, and on a picture hanging on the wall. It looked as though Andrew Borden had been attacked from above and behind as he slept. Several minutes passed before anyone thought of going upstairs to see if Abby Borden had come home. Maggie, I am almost positive I heard her coming in, Lizzie spoke. Go upstairs and see. Bridget refused to go upstairs by herself. So Mrs. Churchill went with, with her. They went up the front staircase together. Bridget was the first to see Mrs. Borden's body. Mrs. Churchill rushed by her, viewed the dead body in a pool of blood, and Miss Churchill later said that she only looked like the form of a person. The two horrified women rushed downstairs. Is there another? Dr. Bowen asked. Yes, Miss Churchill replied. She's up there. Dr. Bowen thought that Mrs. Borden had been struck more than a dozen times. From the back, the autopsy later revealed that she had been night revealed that there had been 19 blows to her head, probably from the same hatchet that had killed Mr. Borden. The blood on Mrs. Borden's body was dark and congealed leading him to believe that she had been killed before her husband. Dr. Bowen was heavily involved in the activities of the Borden house on the day of the murder. He was the first to examine the bodies, 
sent a telegram to Emma to summon her home. Assisted Dr. Dolan with the autopsies and even prescribed a calming tranquilizer for Lizzie. He was a constant presence in the house and his involvement with them, especially on August 4th, has led to him being considered a major figure in some of the conspiracy theories developed around the murder. So who was Bridget Sullivan? Well, the Irish maid was destined to be a chief witness at Lizzie's trial, resided in Anaconda 45 years, and she probably took a secret to her grave. Her name was Bridget Sullivan. You see, there were only two people beside the victims at the boarding house that day. The daughter Lizzie was there, and the 25-year-old Irish maid, Bridget. It's intriguing. It's intriguing that Bridget was probably the only other witness, and she heard nothing. She was upstairs in a bedroom while somebody had been hit at least 19 times in the face. <laughs> um, interesting to not hear a single thing, but anyways. So some investigators contend that Bridget had to have help. However, Few believe that the timid 25-year-old woman could have been enticed to wield an axe again and again and again until few victims were bloody masses. But many do think that Bridget was less than forthright at the trial, that she, wa she wasn't paid of sum of money just because tight-fisted Lizzie liked her. It is argued that Bridget stood outside the ladder washing the windows that awful morning and that she was looking straight into the house. They further argue it would have been almost impossible for her to not seen or heard anything suspicious. Certainly, Bridget failed to give a true picture of the tense feelings that existed between Lizzie and her stepmother. The stepmother was recently portrayed on TV as a mean and spiteful woman, but some who knew her have written that Mrs. Borden was quiet, shy, and afraid of the haughty Lizzie. So, Bridget had a girlhood friend who had migrated from Ireland to Butte, and whose name was Minnie Green. Toward the later part of Bridget's life, while still living in Anaconda, she became seriously ill. She sent word to Miss Green that she wanted to see her because she had something to tell her. The story of that meeting is related in several publications, but perhaps most clearly in a book written by Victoria Lincoln, who lived next door to the Bordens. In a private disgrace, Miss Lincoln claims that the visit between Minnie Green and Bridget was described to a Butte library, librarian, librarian by Minnie. 
On the occasion of the visit, Bridget told Minnie she had worked for the Bordens at the time of the murders, a crime about which Minnie knew nothing. Bridget said she had liked she had liked Lizzie, and often took her part during troubles occurring in the Borden household. She said she helped Lizzie out at the trial, and that she had been less than candid. Bridget was too ill for Minnie to press for further details, and when she visited again, Bridget was feeling better and refused to discuss the matter. She exacted a promise from Minnie that she would never reveal what she had been told. Minnie Green kept that promise until after Bridget died. It was then, when an old lady that Miss Green stopped at the Butte Library to obtain books about a real murder, and it was on that day Miss Lincoln claimed that Minnie Green told the librarian about her visit to Bridget. Many doubt that a stranger, perhaps a business enemy of Lizzie's father, Andrew Borden, could enter the gate, get through the locked door, the locked front doors, or walk around the, and enter the kitchen door without being seen by Bridget as she washed the windows or by Lizzie. But if this happened, was the Slayer so cool that he slashed to death Abby Borden hid in a closet for half an hour and then calmly continued by shopping by chopping Andrew Borden to death and even if there was a business associate associate so angry as to kill Borden as Lizzie suggested why would he tromp upstairs and kill an innocent Abby first could two vicious murders be accomplished all the evidence destroyed without a single sound or act noted by Bridget? Why did Bridget and Lizzie change their testimony between the time of the inquest and the trial? In later years, Bridget spoke only once of the axe murders. Didn't she oftentimes think about the tragedy, say at night when she went in to be in her little house on Alder Street? Did she turn the events of that hot August morning over in her mind, or did she, in her heart of hearts, know? Bridget told Minnie Green, according to the researchers, that she never told a single untruth at the trial. That was probably so, but what about the things she did not tell? Bridget did go back to Ireland as Lizzie's lawyer advised, but not for long. After a time, she wrote to Minnie at Butte saying she was not happy on the farm and she had brought in she had brought in the old country and there were no young men as prospective husbands. When Bridget came back, she took a different steamship line than the first time she journeyed to America. She disembarked at New York and traveled straight to Montana. It may be true that Bridget never saw, heard, or suspected anyone. If so, then she found the deserved escape. If so, then she found the deserved escape from notoriety. If instead she omitted or skirted valuable testimony, she wronged the butchered Andrew and Abby Borden and plotted justice. Whichever, Bridget did live a wholesome life when she settled in Anaconda, and her neighbors respected and liked her. There is proof that Bridget could lie in a pinch. 
A check at a courthouse in Anaconda uh, reveals that on June 20th, 1905, when John Sullivan and Bridget Sullivan applied for a marriage license, Bridget lied about her age. When Bridget testified under oath in court at Fall River, she said she was 26. The trial was in 1893. This meant that she was born in 1867. She also said she had come to America seven years previous, which she which would have been in 1886 and she would have been 19 when she arrived in this country. She wrote her birth date that June 20th she she wrote her birth date that June 20th in Anaconda as February 3rd, 1871. And even if that had been so, she would have been 34, not 35 years old as she recorded. The one year difference could have been a simple sub- subtraction error, but it's doubtful that anyone that young would have been mistaken about the birth date by four years. In truth, she was 38 years old when she married. John Sullivan on that day they applied for the marriage license was 37. Perhaps Bridget didn't want her future husband to know she was older than he was. Bridget is is recorded in the 1925 city directory as being domestic help for the late Judge George Winston, who lived at 510 Main Street. Her parents were Eugene and Margaret Leary Sullivan, and she was born in Cork County, Ireland. She married June 21st, 1905 at St. Paul Church with Father J.M. O'Brien officiating. Standing up for the Millenbeds were P.J. Sullivan and Bridget Sullivan. Epitaph. It's well and good to say that the past should remain the past, but one might argue that when Bridget escaped Lizzie's monetary gift and agreed to go back to Ireland forever after being, after having been helpful in the double axe murder trial, she forfeited, she forfeited her right to anonymity. A visit to Bridget's grave on Mount Olive, where one sees a gentle breeze ruffling the grasses about her headstone, provoking long thoughts. Strange that on a hillside so far from Fall River, probably lies buried the answer which so many have sought for more than 80 years. So, in conclusion, who is Bridget Sullivan? Who is Lizzie Borden? Who's Abby Derby Gray? Who's Andrew Jackson Borden? Who's Emma Borden? So, when we look through this trial, we'll hear what each person says on the stand. But who was the full person? Who were they fully? What was their character in daily life? What did they go on to be after the trial? Did they speak of the trial? We all have questions and history. So who were these people? Will we ever know? Will we ever find out who killed Abby and Andrew? on August 4th. We'll find out together and maybe we'll find a conclusion. Who knows? But I think it's interesting. So I hope you guys like this.
and we can all go on this journey together.